All right, so we're up to uh, number 26. Theodore Roosevelt. Daddy! And Theodore Roosevelt, um, sometimes I'll call him TR for short, he was known as a highly ambitious man who never stopped talking about things that involved changing things of how they were and about war. And in fact, he romanticized war. He, uh, his mom, interestingly enough, um, her name was Margaret. Oh, I wrote it down. Something like, no, Martha. It was like Martha Stewart Bullock. Um, she went by the nickname Mitty. She was the influence or one of the inspirations for the character Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. That was actually uh, something that Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, she said, yeah, I kind of... I kind of took that from uh, T.R.'s mom. So, interestingly, Theodore Roosevelt, like half of his family at least, was very, very Southern. Um, but he had grown up mostly in New York, New York City. And his dad was like the um, curator of a museum or something. And from an early age, Theodore was very inquisitive. He would go out and, like, kill insects so he could mount them on a board and study them. <laughs> it ain't easy to mount an insect. Yeah. And and other as well as other things. He had, like, a taxidermy kit. Like, he was just—he was in a bunch of stuff, which seems really cool, except that he was a little also out of control. Like, when he was younger, he was diagnosed with asthma, so his father— had like this gymnasium or, or this place where he could work out and the house built. And he told his son, you know, prove him wrong. Like, you know, take that weakness and turn it into a strength. And, and Theodore never let that go. Like he sunk those giant teeth of his into that statement from his dad. And he loved his dad. Um, and he just went through that his whole life, just go, go, go. He had an interesting take on masculinity and oftentimes you hear the statement that whether it's a president or not, like he was a man of his time or a person of their time. And in that way, I felt like Theodore Roosevelt was a man of his time, especially with the sentiments of all the hobos that were trying to grasp what was remaining of their masculinity by eschewing the societal constraints of, of the home, of the family, of even being around women unless they were like paid for. <laughs> um, but Theodore Roosevelt, he really played up the masculine image, whether it was going on hunting parties or boxing or skinny dipping and swimming the Potomac in the middle of winter, which is a awful picture to have in my head. Um, but he was, yeah, he was like a rough and tumble character, but it, it didn't start out that way. Like I said, he was, he was a sickly child. Um, he ended up being the assistant secretary of the Navy. And one day his boss went for like a half a day. His boss took a half a day off and he said, now, Theodore, I don't want you to start any wars while I'm gone. <laughs> if you got to be told that, <laughs> something's fucking wrong. Theodore was also known as a bull in a china shop. And on more than one occasion, he was called that. Um, so he was left alone for half a day while his boss went and got a massage in a mechanized massage chair. Hmm. 
And um, on that day, he like he told all of the Navy to get their ships ready to go to war just in case. Now, that was in February of 1898, shortly after the uh, the Maine, the USS Maine exploded. And that was the remember the Maine to hell with Spain fake news that Gumby had mentioned. So about a month later, Theodore gave this very fiery pro-war speech. And by April, with the help of that fake news, we were in the Spanish-American War, um, which was with Cuba and the Philippines. And Theodore was like, oh, you know what? To hell with this assistant secretary of Navy position. I want to be there. Like, I want to do this. And it was interesting to note that Theodore's dad had not ever been in the military. He actually paid someone to take his place, which was common in the day if you were rich enough to do that. Um, and the, the younger Theodore, because his dad was Theodore also, um, Theodore Roosevelt, TR, he was like, no, I'm going to go. Like, I'm a badass. I'm going to get all my friends together from like these Ivy League colleges, Harvard and Yale. And he assembled what became known as the Rough Riders. <laughs> and Sounds like a bunch of fucking condoms. <laughs> kind of was. Uh, yeah. So the Rough Riders consisted, like I said, of um, Ivy League uh, collegiate athletes, glee club uh, singers. <laughs> um, there were cowboys and there were Indians, Native Americans. I can just see uh, old Teddy giving nicknames to his Rough Riders. You there, we'll call you French Tickler. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he wasn't in charge of the Rough Riders, although he kind of thought he was. Um, Leonard Wood was, I guess, the the general or commander of see? the Rough Riders. See, see, huh. Wood. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, Let me guess. Another guy's named Dick, right? Probably. <laughs> so, let me point out that I think. Theodore Roosevelt is one of those people, Gumby and I were talking about people that you just want to punch him in the face. I feel like Theodore Roosevelt was probably one of those people. Um, he, he did a lot of stuff, but it was almost like he did it for a photo op. And even as a member of the Rough Riders, you know, he was the only one. These were Rough Riders. These were supposed to be a cavalry unit. Um, when they left the mainland to go over to Cuba to fight, he was the only one that could take a horse because they didn't have enough room on the boat for anybody else's horse. Um, but he was able to take his. It's kind of like when Oprah Winfrey wears the only red dress at her party. Yeah. So he's over there and Leonard Wood is supposed to be in charge, but there was some erroneous information that he had been shot. So Theodore Roosevelt like takes the lead and he kind of haphazardly leads his men up this hill, um, Kettle Hill. I think, I forget what the battle was, if it was the Battle of Guasimus or something else. But it was almost like he did all of that for a photo op. Because there are pictures of this. And and let me tell you, there are so many pictures of the, uh, like, the hand-picked costumes, I mean, uniforms that they used. It in the Rough Riders unit. It, it was very, um, I don't know, it just smacked of, like, rich people. Yeah, everything about Teddy was, like, a little rich bastard that's really <laughs> tailoring his image to look like a frontiersman. 
And but when he came back from the war, from the from the war, um, which it was, I mean, God, God knows, people died. But he came back as a war hero and like the most popular man in America. Like everybody loved the stories that Theodore Roosevelt told. Now, Gumby had mentioned that William McKinley, uh, when his vice president died, that Garrett Hobart guy, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, he said publicly that he would not accept the powerless position of vice president. But President McKinley, as well as this campaign manager, Mark Hanna, they didn't want him to be vice president. <laughs> it was like, it was like Theodore Roosevelt just thought himself so high, thought of himself so highly that he was like, no, no, I couldn't possibly be vice president. And like the presidents over there, like nobody asked you to be my vice president. I didn't want you to be. No, no, hush. I, I won't do it. You won't talk me into it. <laughs> but where Theodore Roosevelt had ended up um, at that time, well, before that, in New York City, he had been like a police commissioner. And the bosses, like the party bosses, and this one in particular, Thomas Platt, he did not want Theodore Roosevelt back in New York City. Like he wanted to be doing his own shit uninhibited by Theodore Roosevelt. Because remember, Theodore Roosevelt was all about, like, changing things and getting shit done and, like, having fame to his name. And so the bosses in New York City got together and they began a campaign to get Theodore Roosevelt in as the vice president for William McKinley. And then, of course, they did get Theodore Roosevelt in and then McKinley was shot, which made him president. Um, when McKinley was shot in typical Theodore Roosevelt fashion, he was out in the, I think the Adirondack mountains. And so he decided that he was going to ride horses through the night to get to where McKinley was just to see if he could make it before the president died. Um, cause he didn't die right away. They were like trying to save him, but he rode horses. <laughs> um, he like switched out his horses, fixing his suit along the way, just in case there was a photo opportunity. Everything about this guy, he's like writing his own legend in his mind. Yeah. Like that saying, you're an, a legend in your own mind. That, that was, was Daddy Rose. Yeah. And that's why I feel like I want to punch him in the face whenever I hear about this stuff. Then he tell the legend of that time that Harpy punched him in the face. <laughs> a common hobo. <laughs> so, yeah. So he didn't make it um, before William McKinley died, but he did become president. And even his closest friends thought he was a control freak. He wanted to change everything. The rules of football. He wanted to change <laughs> these, like, minted coin designs because he didn't like them. And people were just like, he wants everything from, like, the birth of Christ to the death of the devil, was what one of his friends said. God, next this guy's going to ask for his face to be chiseled on the side of a fucking mountain. <laughs> Oh, that's painful because uh, that happened. Well, Gumby had also talked about um, during this time, Cuba was gaining its quote unquote independence. <laughs> and like I said, well, you know, McKinley um, had been shot. So this was kind of like TR assuming a lot of this. And Gumby had mentioned that Cuba formed its own government, but were still under the jurisdiction of the U.S. military. And, Gumby, you had mentioned that there were restrictions with the Platt Amendment 
and the perpetual lease on Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. Which I wonder, is that why we're not closing Guantanamo? Because we don't know how to get out of that? We were like, we signed ourselves up for a lease in perpetuity. Oh, I think we're, it's been working for us and it makes us work for us. Uh-huh. We just can't, so, we can't yeah. close it. And something else that you had alluded to was the Monroe Doctrine. But did you know that in typical TR fashion, there is a Roosevelt corollary <laughs> to the Monroe Doctrine? Now, check this out. I, again, printed it out so I'd get it right. All right. The Roosevelt Corollary mandating that any nation engaged in chronic wrongdoing, that is to say, a nation that did anything to threaten perceived U.S. economic or political interests, would be disciplined militarily by the United States, which was to serve as an international police power. So while the Monroe Doctrine had warned European powers to keep their hands off of countries in the Americas, President Roosevelt was now saying that since the United States would not permit European powers to lay their hands on the Central and South American countries, that we as the United States had an obligation to do so ourselves. White man's burden. In short, he, Theodore Roosevelt, would intervene to keep others from intervening. And I think that's sick. He really was a control freak. Um, <laughs> That's kind of like killing people so they'll be safe for murderers. At the same time, we had troops uh, that were sent to Honduras in 1903, the Dominican Republic in 1903, Cuba, um, 1906 through 1909, Honduras in 1907, Nicaragua 1907, and off and on through 1933, as well as in Panama, and uh, more on Panama in just a moment. And all of these troops were defending American business interests. And this is where I'm surprised that you didn't mention him, but it was very briefly that you talked about, uh, like, the Boxer Rebellion and also, of course, the uh, the wars that were going on in the Philippines and the battles. Smedley Butler. Mm-hmm. Introducing Smedley Butler. That's our John Brown of this time period. Well, I'm definitely going to talk about him a lot more coming up, but, yeah, go for it. Well... So getting back to Panama, we know about now the Panama Canal, but did you know that it could have been, and probably maybe should have been, in Nicaragua? But along with several other players, Theodore Roosevelt orchestrated a revolution that separated Panama into its own country from Colombia, which originally owned that territory. Um, we basically orchestrated with the guerrilla fighters in Panama, like we made them think that the United States was going to support them in their quest for independence. And so they went ahead and took it. And then because of the Monroe Doctrine, we went in there to protect our American interests and helped to free Panama so we wouldn't have to pay the Colombian government for the land. And Panama... Uh, gave us the most direct route uh, to build a canal so that we could move our military, our navy, through from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific, cutting off thousands of miles and many, many weeks of time instead of going around uh, South America. We could just go through the Panama Canal. But that was uh, quite a contested issue 
in Congress was whether to build it through Nicaragua, which seemed like the safer route, or Panama, which is, uh, that, that was actually one of the, like, I don't want to say affairs, but that was one of the scandals that was in the Theodore Roosevelt um, presidency. Like, how did we pull that off? Uh, it probably came easy to Theodore Roosevelt, someone who even threw his own brother and his brother's family under the bus just so that he wouldn't look bad in his re-election campaign. A story came out uh, not too long ago, I think the book was published in like 2016 or something, about how Theodore Roosevelt found out that his brother Elliot had fathered a child with a woman other than his wife. And he was like, oh man, I cannot have this break right as I'm trying to get the presidency, win the election in my own right. So he orchestrated a plan to have this woman paid off, to just keep her mouth shut and to never ask for anything from the Roosevelt family. Donald Trump! (laughs) And many other politicians. Um, So yeah, so Elliot was placed into a, I guess they call them sanitariums back then, but he was kind of put into a rehab program because he had a drinking problem, and that was legitimate. And the baby that was, you know, made between him and the woman that wasn't his wife was illegitimate, Um, but Theodore Roosevelt also ruined the, his brother's family. And someone that was affected that we'll hear about later in history is Elliot's daughter, Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, um, with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Let's see. Oh, so in the Filipino, uh, American war, or insurgency, or, uh, what's the other word for it? God, we were invading their land. There was a battle known as the Battle of Bud Dajo, I think it's pronounced, D-A-J-O. And (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt was kind of an asshole. Um, There was also the Moro Rebellion, and... Let me read this quote. So, let me make sure I haven't left anything out here. So there was all this war going on in a country that we shouldn't have even been messing with. But <laughs> Was there a country we should have been messing with? Right, exactly. Uh, let's see. All right. So, supposedly, we won in the Philippine-American War, but there were these battles that were going on forever that was resi- they were resisting uh, the American forces, and it was known as the Moro Rebellion. Um, the Moro people were Muslims in, I believe, the southern part of the Philippines, and they were known for, like, centuries of resisting control, outside control. They wanted to just be left alone, go figure. So there was this Moro Rebellion, um, whether it was a battle or massacre, it was certainly the bloodiest of any engagements of the Moro Rebellion, with only six of the hundreds of Moro casualties, uh, let's see, six of the hundreds of Moro surviving the bloodshed. So hundreds of these people were killed. Estimates of American casualties ranged from 15 to 21 killed and 75 wounded. Following the American victory, or slaughter, 
um, of the Moro people. President Theodore Roosevelt sent Leonard Wood, his old friend from the Rough Riders. Also known as French Tickler. Uh-huh. A congratulatory cablegram. Um, but reporters that were stationed in Manila had cabled their own account to the press. The March 11, 1906 New York Times headline reads, Women and children killed in Moro battle. Mingled with warriors and fell in hail of shot. Four days of fighting, 900 persons killed or wounded. President wires congratulations to the troops. Ooh, burn! So I'm guessing the New York Times wasn't his favorite newspaper to read. It was a public relations disaster. But that didn't stop Teddy Roosevelt from putting his foot in his mouth again. Um, let's see, where is that? Theodore Roosevelt called one of the Filipino guerrilla leaders a renegade Pawnee. Ooh, so now he's using Indian terms, um, indigenous people. And Theodore Roosevelt um, additionally observed that Filipinos did not have the right to govern their country just because they happened to occupy it. Let me just let that sink in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, his, his old friend Leonard Wood from the Rough Riders actually became governor of Moro province once they uh, killed all the people there. Here's another example of Theodore Roosevelt uh, expressing his masculinity in the world. The Great White Fleet. It was the popular name for a powerful U.S. Navy battleship. Uh, which completed a journey around the globe from December 1907 to February of 1909 by the order of U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. Its mission was to make friendly courtesy visits to numerous countries while displaying it, the new naval U.S. naval power to the world. Oh, so we were just going around like smiling and handing out candy, but also like fear us. And know that we can reach you with our majestic battleships that we call the Great White Fleet. Uh, I'm sure there's no mistake in that name. <laughs> Let's see. Is there anything else? Uh, yeah. So they wanted to make nice nice with all the countries, but also let everyone know how strong we were. Uh, that's about all I have about that. You should look it up, though. It's pretty obnoxious. And let's see. What else? Oh, Yes. Another time that Theodore Roosevelt was uh, was primed for being punched in the face. There was an incident known as the Brownsville Raid or the Brownsville Affair that took place in Texas. This was in August of 1906. There was an African-American 25th Infantry Regiment, also known as Buffalo Soldiers, that were framed and blamed for the shooting at of a sheriff and the murder of a bartender, as well as an attack on a white woman. Now, these soldiers, uh, they were in Texas, and Texas had many codes that basically called for different ways that black people and white people can live. So the black people were already under a lot of scrutiny, and there was a lot of racial tensions there. The commanding officers of this regiment were white and they instructed on these particular nights uh, that these shootings and alleged attacks happened that the soldiers have an early curfew and they are in the barracks by a certain time and the white officers 
they said in their testimony that all the soldiers were present and accounted for in their barracks. Now, who who was to blame then? Because the townspeople were like, no, we, we know for a fact that it was these African-American soldiers. But they were all in their barracks, so how could they have done it? Well, President Roosevelt intervened, and he dishonorably discharged 167 men for their conspiracy of silence. So in other words, they weren't, there was no proof that they had done any of these things that the townspeople had said. Even the townspeople tried to frame the soldiers by planting spent bullets that were from the military at the scene of the crime, but it was later disproved that they were from the soldiers' rifles. Um, Some of those 167 men had been in the military for over 20 years and were almost up for pension, which was denied because they were dishonorably discharged. And they were no longer able to work for the military or for the government in any civil service capacity. So a lot of those people's lives were over because who's going to hire a black person that was dishonorably discharged from the military? Um, yeah. So that sucked. Um, the presidential administration withheld information on the dishonorable discharge of soldiers until after the 1906 elections so the pro-Republican black vote wouldn't be affected. <laughs> so did you get me on that? Theodore Roosevelt had no problem dishonorably discharging these black uh, military veterans, but he didn't want it to come out before the election just so it wouldn't ruin his chance of winning the votes of black people. And they were discharged without the benefit of the due process of law that was guaranteed to them by the U.S. Constitution. So that's also, I think, an abuse of power. And it doesn't surprise me because Theodore Roosevelt was such a bastard. Um, there are comments that he's made, that TR has made, about the indigenous people of this land. This is from a website that I really like because they've actually covered every single president except Donald Trump because it was coming out before he was elected. Um, it's If you type in the name of a president, like Theodore Roosevelt, and then the word Indian, it'll come up. It's uh, it's usually newsmaven.io, and it's uh, from, uh, I guess, a newspaper called Indian Country. So these are quotes from that website uh, from Theodore Roosevelt. TR says, the most vicious cowboy has more moral principle than the average Indian. I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are. And he said this during a January 1886 speech in New York. And he concluded, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. Um, at one point in time, he said of the General Allotment Act that it was a mighty pulverizing engine to break up the tribal mass. The Indians should be treated as an individual, like the white man, but Indians were not equal to whites, Roosevelt told Congress. God, this guy's such an asshole. He even, he's such a control freak. Gumby, you know how you talked about giving the Indians haircuts 
1902, there was a haircut order. And it was important because uh, this guy, the commissioner of Indian Affairs, William Jones, he said to Roosevelt, it's important because the wearing of short hair by the males will be a great step in the advance and will certainly, oh, it will certainly hasten their progress towards civilization. The male student returning to the reservation too often fell into the old custom of letting his hair grow long. He also paints profusely and adopts all the old habits and customs, which his education in our industrial schools has tried to eradicate. Roosevelt called on Indian schools to teach the young to earn a living, to make them indistinguishable from their white associates. In dealing with the Indians, our aim should be their ultimate absorption into the body of our people, he said. It was interesting, though, because he, um, upon entering his second term, he wanted to have this huge inaugural parade, because of course he did. And he wanted it to include members of his Rough Riders uh, cavalry unit, as well as six Indian chiefs in full regalia. Geronimo still a prisoner of war, rode in the parade, along with my boyfriend, Quanah Parker, <laughs> Buckskin Charlie, Little Plume, American Horse, and Hollow Horn Bear. The chiefs, wearing full regalia, waved as they passed Roosevelt, uttering whoops as they did so. Whoop, whoop, the New York Times reported on March 5, 1905. When asked why he invited Indians to, to participate in his parade, Roosevelt answered, I wanted to give the people a good show. Oh, I want to punch him in the face. Um, let's see. Let's talk a moment about his conservation efforts because <laughs> that's a real sore spot for me. Of course, I love the idea of the conservation of lands for, for our generation, for future generations, but think for a moment what that means especially if you're an indigenous person. So you've got this land that is sacred to you, whether it's from just from living on it, from like all the generations of your tribe that has come before you, whether there is a sacred monument, where, whether there are artifacts, whether there are the bones of your family that have been buried there. And here comes this white guy, old Teddy, who decides that his place in history is to make all of these lands public lands from the federal government. So now it's under federal government protection. It's no longer Indian land, Indian sacred land. It's for the protection of what's on the land, the resources. And Theodore Roosevelt has been in many books talked about as a conservationist and that he loves nature but actually I think he loves science which is kind of like the religion of dead things uh, more than anything he established the U.S. Forest Service five national parks and he signed the 1906 Antiquities Act under which he proclaimed 18 new U.S. national monuments he established 51 bird reserves, four game preserves, and 150 national forests. He placed 230 million acres under, quote, public protection. 
By the end of his second term, he had used executive orders to establish 150 million acres of reserved forestry land. Um, It was said in one of the books we read, his favorite uh, method of saying his executive order was, I so declare it. I so declare it to be a monument. I so declare it to be a preserve for birds and so forth. TR's key advisor and subordinate on environmental matters was Gifford Pinchot, which I think we'll talk about him later in history too, who was the head of the Bureau of Forestry. TR transferred control over of the national forests from the Department of the Interior to the Bureau of Forestry, which was part of the Agriculture Department, which kind of gives you a, a looking glass into how, Ro- how Roosevelt viewed these lands. Roosevelt's policies faced opposition from both environmental activists like John Muir and opponents of conservation like the senator from Colorado, Henry Teller. While Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club, wanted nature preserved for the sake of its pure beauty, Roosevelt subscribed to Gifford Pinchot's formulation, quote, to make the forest produce the largest amount of whatever crop or service will be most useful and keep on producing it for generation after generation of men and trees. And I think that's disgusting because I feel like even though he was a man of his time, maybe he was even considered forward-thinking and progressive, which he was considered a progressive, um, it still misses the point. It's still not what I would consider if there's good or bad. It, It wasn't a good decision. Um, I used to think that it was a good decision, but now I see things differently. I, I try to look at things from different people's perspectives, not just from my own small view of the world. Let's see. Yeah, like I said, Theodore Roosevelt, um, in his second term especially, moved left of center, increasing government involvement to curtail radicalism and revolution. And What that means to me is he would give the people just a little bit so we could keep society going, the status quo. Gumby, did you have anything to talk? No. Oh, okay. Um, Let me finish up here. Sorry. There was just a lot on Theodore Roosevelt. and My goodness. I just want to smack him. Um, God, let's see. I'm going to conclude. There's a There were a bunch of things that were happening during his presidency. Um, I'll just name some, rattle them off. There was an anthracite coal strike in May of 1902. Um, they also invo- involved J.P. Morgan to help smooth things over. Um, Ford was coming out with their Model A and Model T cars. There was this woman who was a Quaker by the name of Lizzie Magee or Magee, M-A-G-I-E, who was granted a U.S. patent in January of 1904 for something called the Landlord's Game, which eventually became Monopoly. But initially, her game was like the opposite of Monopoly. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it, but imagine someone who, her way of thinking was she wanted to show the evils of land ownership and property taxes and having the wealth um, be concentrated in the hands of a few. And Parker Brothers ended up uh, 
making this game not through her but through a man who basically stole the idea and sold it to Parker Brothers under his own uh, contract. And Parker Brothers, of course, made it into the game that we know now. Let's see. I just want to show that Theodore Roosevelt was, in two words, selfish scientist who sees more value in death than in life. Even after his presidency, he killed animals to fill museums, and he was still generally ranked as one of the five best presidents in history, with his face, yes, being carved on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, being the best president is sort of like being the uh, the smartest kid on the short bus. 